0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Abram Kipalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist test. Mika. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kovachowski, and it's, it's nice and dark outside Yitzhok, so let's talk about film noir, and specifically, I mean, I guess we can probably, there are podcasts and podcasts on top of podcasts devoted to film noir. Uh, it's a term that the French made popular. Uh, it really started getting currency in the 70s. And what it was, was it was a look back on a number of films that were either called B films or melodramas, the films that really the, the studio sometimes was not so proud of. It was films that didn't cost as much. They weren't as big budget. They weren't big musicals and often did not have the A-list stars in them. Sometimes, and and it, it really like all things that seem to be insignificant, actually was able to be uh, a playground for a lot of the most inventive and interesting directors, many of them of foreign extraction, and especially not only the cinematographers they used, but also uh, the orchestrations. And these stories were dark, and that's what film noir means, of course. It's dark. It's gritty. It's not big, wide-open spaces with the sun beaming down on you. Uh, it's films that uh, have characters that are dark as well. But it isn't just your typical Snidely Whiplash, uh, Dudley Do Right, Good Guy, and Bad Guy. Really, it, often the villains, although they weren't pieces like that, sort of lionized or wanted us to sort of relate to the, um, you know, uh, the extravagance and sort of sexiness of of the gangsters, like you have Little Caesar and other films like that, or to get caught up in the emotional wallop that uh, actors like Cagney uh, was able to bring to the screen in his portrayal of gangsters. But rather, these were characters that were flawed, characters that had an ugly side, a seamy side, but also very positive sides. It was, these characters were more realistic. They weren't drawn, in necessarily the same ugly or lurid or fantastic colors that other characters were. They were, in other words, shades of gray. And that always matched the whole film noir milieu. Much of these films were filmed at night. A lot of these films, the story even begins as the credits begin to roll. There isn't necessarily this huge fanfare to make these films start, but as the credits roll, you already see someone running, someone moving the steps are happening. It's a film that really, these films really give you the idea that you are dropping into life and life is not what Hollywood tells you it is, the other Hollywood. It's not necessarily the the weirdness of you know, of, 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 of what later, be, of the science fiction genre. It's also not the, the incredible uh, optimistic aspects of many of the musicals And it's not even the the intense soap opera aspects of some of these other films. It really is in many ways somewhere in between. And sometimes it's messy and you can actually see characters who make mistakes. Characters who are pretty much like you who might've made that one mistake that lead them to uh, an ending that you wouldn't want to happen to you. But you could see that could easily be yourself. There's a lot of debate, you talk about what is film noir and does it, there need to be a crime? Can, it be, can a color film be a film noir? When did film noir, when did that area end? It's almost like this used to be nobody's baby and all of a sudden everybody in the world wants to jump on it and it's, it's like this is, this, is, oh, this is what we need to extol about. Films in the 50s that won the Oscar, like Around the World in 80 Days, The Greatest Show on Earth, even from here to eternity, no one cares about them that much, but it's these little films, whether it's Edward G. Omer that you mentioned the other night, or some of Michael Kortesh's, or um, uh, 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 Sam Fuller, these directors, uh, some of them who never won an Oscar, but really were standouts in this genre, which is called this dark aspect of film, and I and again, as I say, I, I, to me there are certain films that are perhaps uh, the apogee of, of of what film noir are. Um, a couple of them spring to mind. The Maltese Falcon is is one. Um, Spade is obviously not a great person. Bridget O'Shaughnessy is obviously also not a, a typical uh, evil person. Even Sydney, even Cindy Greenstein and Peter Lorre are able to show. A lot of, in a way, it's not clear, of course, they are the heavies and the villains, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody is good in that film. Of course, that's John Huston's um, film more. You also have um, Billy Wilder's uh, Double Indemnity, where you have uh, Fred McMurray plays a character that is clearly is given into his inner demons, but is pretty much like you and me. His, I don't think Fred McMurray has ever been better in any film. When he play, as he plays the villain, so to speak, but also the hero in this film. Evergy Robinson, sort of a hero, sort of a villain in that film. And even Barbara Stanwyck, who is the obviously considered the most evil of them all, she surprisingly, surprisingly talks about herself and says, yes, I'm evil, I'm bad. Not like a, a Republic serial villain who just wants to you know, be evil and laugh about it. A person who's evil and hates themselves for it uh, and can therefore be sympathetic. So these uh, classic uh, noirs that I'm talking about that really sort of really develop almost uh, exponentially during the 50s, and now we look back at them and people like Eddie Muller and others uh, have a career um, pointing to them and telling about them. Um, We want to touch tonight on some of them that you might not have necessarily classified as noir, but I think are. And I want to talk specifically about a director who I haven't been mentioned yet, and we haven't really talked about him yet, despite the fact that we always try to have a Jewish slant on whatever we're doing, and that is uh, the director Otto Preminger. Otto Preminger was born in Vizchnitz. Um, He lied a lot about where he was really from, but everybody knew that he was a Jew, and everyone knew that um, whether he was escaping Nazism, he definitely was definitely escaping um, the, the terrible life that the Jews were subjected to in Europe. And he came to the United States, And just like Billy Wilder and many other uh, Jewish emigres uh, became extremely successful in Hollywood, uh, producing, I guess, the film that really made his name, although he made some earlier films in the 30s, uh, he was an assistant director and showed tremendous competence. did some acting as well, I believe, um, was Laura, which uh, starred Dana Andrews and Gene Terney, And this was a film that, was a surprise box office hit. It was a tremendous smash. Many people consider it the best film noir of all time. And it really is about a murder that really didn't happen. And again, I'm sort of giving some stuff away here. Um, And uh, even uh, Preminger uh, really enjoyed making the film. And and, and to my mind, uh, a lot of the things that Otto Preminger did from 1944 on Till I think his last films that were, I think, in the in 1970, or I think I think Bunny Lake is missing. I think that might be one of his last films, or Skidoo. These are some films that he made towards the end of his life. They all have a certain aspect of not only surprise, which Laura of course has, but also of what I think is the main Nakuda, the main point of film norm, which is balance. That it's not. Good or bad, but somewhere in the middle. And as it's just like in Laura, which of course was he made his name with Dana Andrews, obsession with this dead woman is strange. It's, it's, it, it, he's in love but until, of course, Gene Turney ends up being alive, but it's something that's weird and almost kinky. It's yet realized as a, a, a tremendous romantic connection to someone who's not even there. Um, He's able, premature, I think, throughout his career to deal with themes and be able to really surprise the audience with where he's going. I think that, uh, again, I I, I don't have all his films in my head right now, but the films that I think uh, that... uh, There's one I want to talk about specifically tonight. But before I do that, the the films that he's... Two of the ones that he's most well-known for besides Laura, um, are Anatomy of a Murder, which was 1959. Uh, and we've talked about that film in, 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 in large part, but we talked about Georgie e. Scott, and we talked about what Preminger does there and Jimmy Stewart's role there. And of course, this was a film that um, might be, and I think most people think is the greatest American courtroom drama film, um, despite all the other films that have happened until now, the most realistic, and in a way, the one that you don't really get, hmm, is the guy a villain? Is he a hero? The guy that was on trial? Um, is he? Is it just a surprise? Is this, was he justified in, in in killing the owner of the bar because his wife seemed to have been raped? Was his wife really raped or not? Many of those questions are never answered in the film. They're only implied. Of course, it was based on a, uh, on a bestseller. But one thing Preminger wanted to do was, have exactitude. And he filmed it, of course, in, in Upper Peninsula in Michigan, where the events took place. Um, and he used various locals from that area in order to give it a sense of verite, And I, again, it, it was probably Jimmy Stewart's last great uh, film role. It was coming on the heels, of course, of Vertigo and other films. I think in the 60s, he was pretty much doing a lot of, you know, referencing himself. Here was a film that even Jimmy shows some unlikable characteristics. I don't really want to talk about that. remember the other film is a film, called that meant a lot to me growing up. I'm not sure if it did for you. It was Exodus. That was the film that, you know, there's a film about Jews. Here's a film about Israel. Uh, before Fiddler on the Roof hit the scene in 71 or wherever it was, the Norman Jewison's Fiddler on the Roof, I think 71 is when it came in the film. Nine, Exodus was the Jewish film. There was another one called Cast a Giant Shadow. That was a a couple of years later, Um, and uh, the story of Mickey Marcus. But Exodus was the film that everyone connected to Judaism, to the State of Israel. Uh, Ernest Gold's theme of Exodus. Everybody knows the theme of Exodus, Uh, and of course the story of Exodus, which is uh, which is a tragic story, of course, of a ship that wasn't allowed. Uh, to to enter into port and had to be pushed back and uh, the the uh, um, Uri Ben Kanan played by comparable Paul Newman who at that time was at the you know at the crest of his stardom but what's interesting about Exodus was it isn't although Preminger was a Jew and never denied it and um, it was very much not necessarily um, extolling the greatness of Israel unlike Cast a Giant Shadow and some of the other films that were super pro-Israel, very much supportive of what was going on. Preminger was willing in Exodus to give you a sense of perhaps the Arabs had a case. Maybe the English had a case. And maybe the Jewish uh, rashness and some of the uh, the actions that the Jewish people took in order to uh, to ensure that they would get the state of Israel. And the fighting that they did, the Haganaz, um. Although you know again, the Stern gang is not mentioned there, but what the Haganah was doing and that is Paul Newman's role, you don't necessarily like that, and you actually see them as somewhat despicable now of course, that's been pretty much standard now when Israelis are put on the screen now we we get to see their the, the sense that maybe they are uh, stepping on the heels of uh, of the arabs or or denying convention, but it wasn't just the long suffering Jews finally getting what he deserves. And it was incredible, again, that here was a Jewish director who was doing that. And, and the film, of course, w- was, was not a film noir, but it's a film that, hmm, is, is the state of Israel a great thing? Is everyone doing doing it for the right reason? Exodus was surprisingly, again, I, I wish it, would, it wouldn't be that way, but Exodus was not that, Exodus was even handed. And I think that's really that balance is about. Um, and he really shows this in, in, in his in the way he moves his camera. In the film I'm talking about, particularly, most people would not have called this a noir. It's based on a, a, a woman's novel called the name of the novel is called Daisy Kenyon. Daisy Kenyon was a popular um bestseller about a woman who was involved in a triangle. She was in love with a man who was. Uh, tethered to a loveless marriage where that man was a doting wonderful father, but as a business person, he was a, a lawyer who was aggressive, who didn't care about people, who pushed people around, who thought he was the smartest person in the room, who was the the definition of arrogance, but Daisy is, is hopelessly in love with him, and although he keeps on pushing her off as if he, that he's going to divorce his wife he never does and she uh lives in, a, in an apartment that he comes to visit as her paramour and because out of a fr- out of frustration and perhaps because uh she, she realizes that maybe this is a dead end she starts up with a, another person a soldier peter lapin this is his name um and uh, the, the the soldier uh, is someone who has just returned from World War II, someone who has lost his wife before even World War II, who seemed to sign up in order to forget his wife, a person who was haunted not only by the uh, tragic death of his wife years before, but also by the horrible things that he had to do as a soldier. And somehow he pushes himself. This soldier does this highly decorated soldier onto Daisy and in a state of inebriation tells her how much he loves her and in a way causes it uh, uh, pushes himself into this relationship she of course uh, marries him, but still is in love with this other fellow and that's this this triangle sounds like typical. Feminine at that time, or women's flicks, not necessarily not what a film noir should be about. Nobody is shot, nobody is killed, nobody. There's nobody that who, who has somehow committed a, a crime and therefore um, like, you know, needs to is trying to cover something up. There's nobody who's in a relationship that's necessarily um, going to lead them to the who's cow. Yet this film was d- directed. By Preminger, totally as a as a noir, and and I'll explain why. First of all, the three the, the the actors that are that play the main roles. Daisy Kenyon is played by Joan Crawford, and again, Joan Crawford, of course, would won the Oscar a couple of years earlier for Mildred Pierce, uh, was a a presence in the Hollywood for many years, and just her standing on the soundstage was enough to to intimidate people she was a star from the silence already she had been known for her her great beauty but as she aged she became known as a tough woman a woman she was she was a she was a proto feminist type of actress um and of course she expected top billing but the other two actors were henry fonda who again in 1947 when this film came out? Bond had already starred um, as young Abraham Lincoln. He had already been uh, in a number of films, of course, in Preston Sturge's classic comedy, um, The Lady Eve. He had been uh, the star of, of many vehicles, yet he gets really third billing here. The second, uh, the second building was someone that Preminger helped make a star in Laura, which was Dana Andrews. And um, I, we've talked about Dana Andrews before. You'd talk, you might remember I talked about the, the film Boomerang, which was uh, filmed in a DA who decides to... Uh, it, was a, it was an Elliot Kazan film uh, where uh, another sort of a noir type of situation but of course that had arthur kennedy that had a murder in it that had like with the da and dana andrews and 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 was at that point in 1947 was really starting to rise as one of the top sort of although he wasn't a classically handsome fellow like gable or errol flynn there was something very solid about him there was something very you know Uh, He wasn't a method actor like Brando, but there was something very solid and relatable that people saw in Dane Andrews. He was able with his face to show fear and frustration. And and in this film, a a hell of a lot of anger. Um, He plays the, Dane Andrews plays the aggressive go get him attorney um, who has really in a way pushes people around, fast-talking. And what Preminger does throughout the film, and again, he works with the cinematographer, he doesn't put people in close-up, he follows them. Again, I've talked about who I feel is the greatest director in the 20th century, Alfred Hitchcock, but when I watched Daisy Kenyon and I saw the way that Preminger uses the camera, the way he follows characters, the way he has shots that don't seem to have a break, and and again, it's not as uh, it's not as it doesn't knock your socks off like Orson, the beginning of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, but he does similar things. He is able, using the camera, to let make you believe that you are just observing things from multiple perspectives. What's really going on? And neither of these characters come out smelling like, uh, uh, like roses. Daisy is an adulteress. Daisy is someone who has been living with another man's, another woman's husband. True, she, uh, um, uh, obviously, I mentioned Dane Andrews' character. But in a way, he has positive things. His two children love him dearly. He's a very considerate and wonderful father. Uh, He's in a loveless marriage with his wife. And his wife isn't just some sort of victim. She actually takes out her frustration on her children. Preminger indicates, uh, and the screenplay indicates, that she is violent, that because she's frustrated with things going on with her husband, she beats her kids. Um, The children themselves also are not the sweet moppets like we talked about um, in some other films. If you remember, we talked about Three on a Match and I talked about um you know the, the little boy uh in that film, and even last week, when we talked about the little girl in Angels in the Outfield, <laughs> these kids, I wouldn't want them <laughs> you know um they you know, they aren't necessarily as sweet as sugar, but Preminger is very happy about that. uh Preminger has a scene, for example, where after um, they and Andrew's wife is uh, listens on the party line and hears him professes love uh, to Daisy, the Joan Crawford character, Um, she starts speaking into the phone um, in a sort of histrionic way. And when Dana Andrews confronts her about it, he says, now, you know, you've never made me so mad, but I, you know, you know, I feel like I can kill you or I will kill you. And his daughter is, all of a sudden, you see from Preminger's angle that his daughter is listening to this and hears a father tell a mother that he's going to, he would kill her. Um, it's a very shocking, incredible moment. Um, of course, he doesn't mean to, but yet the fact that someone can be so um, so intense and so angry and the child should be able to see it. Uh, there is the uh, Dana Andrews' character Um, has a little bit of a conscience, not only about his children, but he also, and this, I think, is the first film to ever in Hollywood to take on and to to speak about the causes of the Japanese-Americans, the Nisei, whose uh, homes were um, taken away, who were sent to concentration camps, because he goes out to California to take a case in order to defend uh, a Japanese-American citizen. I don't know if there's any film up before this up to this point that had ever really put that issue on the table, um, the way it, it, this film did. You don't see the Japanese person, you don't see the trial, but at least you see that he did. He's trying to find a conscience of some type. When he loses the case, it just he caught, instead of you know becoming some noble uh, person like Jimmy Stewart uh, in um, in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You know he just becomes sullen and bitter and wants to start up again with Daisy, who of course, by this time has married um the soldier played by henry Fonda and th- what's incredible about the film is the surprisingly adult dialogue, despite the fact that the hayes um system of of censorship and Joseph Breen and the others that were monitoring these films. And this is really, I think, something that Preminger consistently tried to do, which was push the envelope of censorship. He wanted a film, to be honest. I, I, I saw, and I didn't prep for this uh, podcast by re-watching it, but I think about 10 or 15 years ago, I watched uh, Preminger and uh, Buckley on firing line where Buckley, of course, was very much against any sort of um, he was against film uh, pushing its way into the pornographic. Uh, he debated Preminger about themes that extremely adult parts of, 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 of in his films. And Preminger spoke about uh, why it was so important as a filmmaker. Um, not because he felt that we needed to throw lewd scenes at people, but because film had to more than just approximate what real life was. And and in Daisy Kenyon, although, you know, it's a, you would say it's just a typical film, they talk very freely and openly. They don't necessarily use what we would call, you know, the the illegal words, but you definitely have an affair. You definitely have people talking Um to, again, beating their children, you, you are you you have a film that is realistic. You have a film that, despite the fact that the, the censorship clamps were on there, in many ways, when you have uh, Fonda and uh, Crawford talking, they each say we probably don't really love each other, but we're using each other. He, he's the rebound for her, and she's the rebound for him. And they both need each other because they're both in pain. He's suffering through nightmares. She represents in a way, uh, a, a way that he can somehow remake his his life before with his wife that died. He knows that she still is in love with the Dane Andrews character, with Dan, Dan O'Mara, whatever his name is, the you know, the the name that they give him. Dan O'Mara sounds very much like Dane Andrews. Um And he knows that he's only there because because he's he's stuck in this other marriage uh again fonda ends up really in a way becoming sort of like the hero in this film but not before uh, the film takes you into a lot of places that you don't expect there's even a courtroom scene in the film um where um you know the his wife files for divorce and you know there's a there's a District, there's sort of like a prosecutor or the defense attorney, not really, but as it's divorce court, it's not really prosecution. Uh, but there is a scene where people are called up to 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 swear, and the best friend is up there, and there's uh, there's cross examination, and you would expect it to lead to some denouma, but really, what premature does is he pulls the plug on this right in the middle. Uh, the the you know, Dan says, "No, let's just stop this. Uh, settle. I don't want her being attacked on 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 on, on the stand." So instead of Crawford going into paroxysms of tears and having some big dramatic uh, finish, he actually stops the courtroom and they go into the chambers and they just start talking about settling the divorce like, like it would, would happen probably in a normal case. And actually premature has the characters say, well, we're going to stop all this. This is just a bunch of, this is a bunch of, this is just show uh, f- for the audience. Because that's the way normal divorce procedures usually, usually happen. Usually happen like that. They don't usually end up. Another thing I want to talk about, why I think this is such a brilliant noir film, is its use of music. You know, the uh, uh, I talked about the the various uh, European composers who were so important in in noir film. In, in this film, the Jewish fellow who was the composer has hardly any music. Whenever Dan O'Mara and Daisy Kenyon are together, whenever Dana Andrews and Joan Crawford are together it 's musicless. The music is reserved for in her married life when she attempts to perhaps find some happiness and that 's a very instead of having this this melodramatic uh, music really telegraph to you what 's going on, you could tell that this is um, you know, people who who have lust for each other but probably aren't good for each other, who probably aren't meant to be that way. Um, And I think it was a very, uh, it's a hop for a director, when he wants his music, how he moves his camera. It isn't just like Ed Wood deciding, okay, let's just get Tor and and, and Elvira and let's just get put everybody there and go. You can see how carefully structured uh, uh, Preminger was here in this film. And uh, although, as I said, it's it sort of, you know, it, perhaps there are people that are not won't be so happy about the way it ends. But I think it actually uh, it actually comes together uh, very nicely, and it's it, it's extremely watchable. And even though it, I, if someone would ask me, is this what you want? You want to watch a film about about a triangle? I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, in premature's hands, I think it, it, it's it's incredible. Just to see the quality of what he's able to do, um, and I would say it's so. This is going to be a little bit your segue here that he saw in Dana Andrews quite a bit, and he, of course, he used him in Laura, he used him in Fallen Angel, uh, and I think you know, writing all these successes, I think Dana Andrews in the fifties was someone that was turned to you know quite a bit as, um, along with John Dahl and others, as if we could you know he should be our leading man. And I also, of course, want to mention when the sidewalk ends, which is where you know, Dana Andrews plays a character also driven by anger, uh, anger with his parent, his parents being, a, his father being a criminal, and he actually is is a violent person towards all criminals, and he ends up killing a criminal uh, accidentally and then trying to cover it up. Um, so Dana Andrews was, I, I think, very much uh, indebted to Preminger, and I know that you've got a film where Dana Andrews um, uh, was was the star. And in many ways, I don't know if he carries the film, but it's crucial for
1: uh, that. worked with Craminger in Laura as well. So mm-hmm. he had a long history of, of working with him. They say he and he got his start actually uh, helping Chaplin compose the music for modern times because Chaplin tried to style himself as a composer, but he really had a lot of ghostwriters helping him. And uh, right. When- he although although
0: I think people say he is the he wrote Smile, um Raskin and others really helped him put the notes down. I think it was more like Chappa's let it sound like this, but he yeah, I think you're correct. Raskin was um was the true <laughs> the true composer while well, uh, Chaplin was sort of
1: started and, you know, when he mentioned Dane Andrews and it's a movie that also you can ask is this noir because usually noir is not horror, not science fiction not fantasy, but the um the the, the person that we're we're talking about here the the uh the director of the film who who was jacques tourneur uh tournay. Uh, kind of straddled those worlds of the science fiction and fantasy mixed with noir. And this is maybe not as good as his earlier works that we had spoken about before the cat people and, and others, but he still managed to keep it. He wasn't able to do what he didn't do in cat people. The one, the one thing that everyone wanted in cat people was just like the wolf man that you had a monster they wanted a monster and cat people, and, and he insisted on not having a monster and really keeping it ambiguous and somewhat possibly even being, uh, you know, that's why it could actually be classified as noir. This movie, which is rele- was released as Night of the Demon and Curse of the Demon, um, depending on uh, the original uh the original british form was was Night of the demon and then the the shorter 14 minute shorter version was uh was curse of the demon that was the american release uh released by columbia pictures and it's interesting because this movie uh you know you would think it 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 was a b picture it was the second it was it released as a second uh, half of a double feature in various uh, film markets, so it wasn't released as the main picture. And yet, it was probably, in some ways probably superior to to the other films that it was that it was trailing, uh, because it was this psychological thriller. It was one of probably the only. That I can think of from the 1950s it was it was from 1958, 57, 58. Was the only uh, version the only film that I can think of from that era that was a supernatural horror thriller movie. Most of the the uh, the, the horror movies of that time were science fiction in nature. There were a few that were in the that supernatural aspect as opposed to science fiction uh but this was i i would say by far the most superior of those type of movies of the 1950s because really it wasn't supposed to be a movie that that had a monster it was the monster was tacked on against against tourney's uh yeah. so, because right.
0: as, the, as you said i can cat people the uh you, know, you, you you don't really see the cat that much you don't see her actually transform into the cat although you you realize that those people couldn't have died unless <laughs> unless this woman is part of those that cat cult but there's seeing it in shadow is a lot scarier in a way and 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 more effective than actually putting the the face of the monster in front of you and that's what you mean um right.
1: so in this movie they they kind of tacked on putting a monster at the beginning, at the end of the movie. You don't see it throughout the movie. It would have, I think, at least been more suspenseful if you only saw the monster at the end and you didn't, you know, they, it, it somewhat ruins it that you see the monster right oh, away at the beginning. And, and, and I, as I
0: said to you before we started recording, when I started looking at all the posters that that this film generated, every single one has the monster as the most prominent aspect of it. So anyone who was walking by this theater. And saw the billboard. You will see the monster. It says, and, you know, you, could, you, you obviously Torner was 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 quite upset about that uh, because not only not only did it go against what he wanted, it was like that was the selling point. This is a monster flick, and you're going to see a monster that looks like this. So it was not the, the people who would go into the film not wanting to see a psychological drama. <laughs> They're waiting for that monster and only right. And that would be a whole different type of film goer than perhaps who Tornay is after. But you're right. Look, even, even Curse the Cat people and I Walked with a Zombie and all the films that he made with Val Luton, those are not, those are films where the artist had to work within the constrictions that the studio clamped upon them. And and I guess you're saying that Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon is pretty much the same thing. You know, it it had to be packaged as this. But if you really get if you really bypass the packaging and, 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 and savor the film, what you have is not just a monster film or a horror film, but you have really a psychological film about belief, right?
1: Right. And and it's really it, in a certain sense, I mean it reminds me of it's it's a it's a, a film that really brings out the starting of the Wiccan uh, cults that started really just around that time. 1954 was when uh, Gardner uh, Gerald Gardner started the uh, the Wiccan religion in in that area in in England. Even though he had been doing various practices before that, but he came out you know with Megala himself, whatever it is. The, to be starting a religion, and this uh, this character in the movie, and he's he plays a character named Professor uh, Julian Carswell, and he's he looks somewhat like uh, this actual you know historical figure of Gerald Gardner, who was trying to you know start and then started a new religion in just around that time. In England. So it, 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 but this wasn't really presenting that he was starting a new religion the way in which Wicca also didn't really consider themselves, the, but rather, you know, keeping alive some ancient form of wisdom that had been lost. Uh, but there, there was no indication really that uh, Gerald Gardner had any malevolent uh, approach to life. Even they said that he did all kinds of, uh, all kinds of uh, witchcraft to try to help England win World War II and fight against the Nazis using the same occult that maybe the Nazis were using on their side. So, but of, course,
0: of, of course, to make it work, though, in the U.S., you, we have to do the ploy of bringing an American into England, right, as
1: as we've well, seen in some other that, films. That's Dana Andrews' uh, character, is this American, uh, uh, he's a... a uh, a journalist and he's
0: who's, who's there to debunk the, the to debunk this uh this religious leader right he's there because he doesn't believe in this
1: he's a big skeptic and he's and his that's his whole mission is to debunk uh all of these weird claims that are being made about this this uh rather innocuous seeming character of carswell i think that's what's really makes him the most frightening is that he has an a extremely dark side that he wants to take revenge, and he'll put on a piece of parchment, write some runes, and if he gives it to someone, the, then the demon will come and and attack and kill the person. And uh, and we see that's what we see at the beginning of the movie. So nothing is being hidden from that. We see that it works. We see that this other professor. Uh,
0: Professor, you know, Harrington, Professor Harrington, Professor dies.
1: Harrington dies. He dies from the he dies from this curse uh, after he got this little piece of cloth. And and then so Harrington's daughter meets Dr. Holden um, and they uh,
0: and there you have Peg now we have the love story here where Peggy Cummins becomes somehow she turns to Holden as as as, as and Dana Andrews here plays the hero, right? In a yeah. way. Yeah. And he's supposed to perhaps expose or figure out, but then he comes to realize correct that that may and, and again, you know, without I think it's not, it's not spoiling things to say that Garswell is actually is able to to slip the piece of paper with the runes on it that'll bring the demon into into Dane Andrews's pocket, right?
1: Right. And that 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 was the whole thing. And he told and he warns him, you know, at this date and this time at midnight, that's it, you're gonna die and it was uh and and who knows you know how much of that is psychological You, you think about you know jungian psychology of you know the psychology of religion of how that works was was this a suggestion i mean we see a demon that attacks people that kills people and but is that really just an archetype of something that's psychological that that this suggestion That this thing is going to kill you is that what does it and that's what leads to it you know there there still is a certain level of ambiguity even with having the monster being shown at the beginning and the end of the movie and you know that that still leaves you know i think makes it somewhat of a outside of that realm of you know the the real, uh, you know, hokey type of monster movie. It it makes it a real yeah. serious. I, I
0: know. I know that Jacques Tourneur so... knew he needed an American as a star, and he wanted Dana Andrews. Yeah. Uh, because of you know, the body of work, I mean, I think the studio wanted Robert Taylor, who was a classically handsome fellow, and Dana Andrews. I think at this time was sort of showing his age, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't as he he wasn't just this, this young hunk the way he looked in in Laura or even in the Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, he was already, you know, he was already. It, it was an interesting casting choice. Do you think? Do you, Do you believe the film is? It, it, does he carry the film, or is, or is really the film carried by uh, by not really by guessing I what's really Guinness, up? I, I
1: think McGuinness is really the the person who really carries the film. I don't. I don't think. I think Dane Andrews could have been interchanged with just about anyone. He did. He does a good job. But to me, the the character of Carswell that McGinnis plays is really what makes or breaks this movie. Because... Well, well, again,
0: McGinnis, you know, if you look up, if you look up about who he
1: was, he was a great character actor, um, who
0: was actually worked in World War Two in the Navy as a surgeon, but uh, he also studied in the Old Vic under John Gilgould. Um, He was a Shakespearean, uh, a very well known Shakespearean actor, and. Uh, as we know, the Brits are incredible. The Brits are able to uh, able to match. He
1: ma- actually, he also played Zeus in Jason Argonauts, which is an interesting connection because they the produ- producers really wanted Ray Harryhausen to animate this mo- this demon, and he was busy making a, uh, another film, which is you know probably the best fantasy film you know not in the horror sense, but in a, a pure fantasy sense of the fifties was the you know the seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And so, since he was busy doing that, he wasn't able to make this demon, which I could imagine it would be something more like the the monster in the in the twenty million miles to Earth. that's called Emir, which is an interesting connection too, because here he's he's passing runes, and he, and the Emir in the previous movie that even though he's never called that in the movie, but he takes a name out of the Norse mythology. A, a, a curious thing about this movie is that. Uh, at one point dana andrews visits stonehenge right and he he examines on the rocks of stonehenge some runes that are written on some runic you know writing and there is there are no runes on stonehenge that's totally <laughs> fiction right right and and
0: it's stonehenge is also featured in in a lot of the in the posters as well along with the image of the of the demon and dana andrews and and peggy uh, him him protecting her um by the way, you know, again, you, I, I, while we were talking, you're talking about based on you said that who was the um Wiccan leader that you feel um Carswell was based on?
1: The Gerald Gardner. Uh-huh. He, see, he, is, uh, he looks almost like This see, is the way that right. he makes him look, he, he looks very similar, though. Mm. Again, Gardner, I think, was more of a he, he, well, that I think that is also part of the, the 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 story here is that this Carswell presents himself to be a friendly person, someone who mm-hmm. plays a clown for children and does magic acts, and yet there's something very dark behind that. Right. And it's,
0: yeah, I, I see that in some in some reviews, people believe that he was actually based on Aleister Crowley, who, of course, uh, was the occultist, uh, um, you know, perverted Kabbalist. Of that yeah, time and, as well. Crowley, so yeah,
1: and, and Gardner learned from Crowley. Crowley was much darker. Was much more. Oh yes, Crowley. <laughs>
0: yes, Crowley
1: he was enjoyed uh, hurting people. You know, using yes. his craft. And, and he, a, I think he does
0: share some a little bit of a of a of a, a, a sort of a Crowley look. He does yeah. have uh, yeah. looking at, looking at the pictures of him. But 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 again, I, and I think part of what what you know you're 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 emphasizing here. And I would agree with you that Dane Andrews, uh, as I saw in the film Boomerang, he he really did a workmanlike job in almost everything he was in. I think Preminger was able to bring him out, uh, you know, his real acting chops, um, and, and in ways that others can't. And I, I guess that really really depends again how you shoot someone, how you shoot the scene, what you want him to come out. I think he could do emotion all right, but he was not he was not a great great uh Icon. He, he couldn't do the type of acting that McGinnis could do. Uh That type of acting and really, you know, almost like
1: probably probably the the strongest thing that he does was when he talks about very personal things, you know, memories from his childhood. That like how he said, you know, every other kid, you know, was scared of of you know walking past past a black cat or and when he uh, or walking under a uh, a ladder, under a ladder, all these superstitions he would be the one who Bedavka would do it just to show that he wasn't scared. Mm-hmm. And that was his whole personality. And when he brings that out, I think he brings it out in a, in a very real way, in a very personal way that you, you do find that to be.
0: Well, no, no There's no doubt about it that, that, like I said, he, he's not off putting, he's an everyman. I think that's really the point of Dana Andrews. Dana Andrews is an everyman that I think you could, you, you could relate to. Um, yeah, uh, maybe less than Henry Fonda, who, of course, you know that was his bread and butter, whether it was in Mr. Roberts or in the Third Man and the in, in in the Wrong Man, um, and, and that's why it's sort of funny in, in the film I mentioned. But again, I, I think Dan Andrews did the best he could with with the skill set that he was graced with, and you know he he definitely is is featured prominently in, in a lot of important films, um, and I think either of these is probably worth your while because they aren't gonna be in the list of the 100 best films (laughs) that you have to see, Daisy Canyon or uh, Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon, but they're probably both Jacques Tournai and and Otto Preminger are definitely worth uh, viewing even when it's one of their lesser known works, I would say. Um, Just a little bit about Preminger again, and I know that I went to town about this idea of balance uh, and it's too bad Tom Shabilla can't join us for this, but you know, Preminger was in the second season of Batman as Mr. Freeze. Uh, now, of course, Mr. Freeze was this villain that uh, was created in the 1950s known as Mr. Zero, but when they wanted to look into Batman's rogues gallery and, and put things on television, they decided the name Mr. Zero didn't sound as good and <laughs> they wanted to call him Mr. Freeze. And that is the way the the television show started influencing the comic book. Eventually the comics actually came up with a very um moving and, and tragic um origin of Mr. Freeze, uh of of you know, of a scientist who was brilliant, um European brilliant, and whose wife uh he was trying, who was frozen in the cyrogenic state, and he's 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 been driven mad. Um in, in, in the TV show, of course, in the uh, kitschy TV show of the 60s, uh, Mr. Freeze uh, was also someone who could, needed to uh, live in, a, in sort of this ice suit They he had to be, for some reason he can only survive in 50 uh, temperatures, 50 degrees below zero. Uh, in the first season, he was played by George Sanders George Sanders was a European-born British actor, though, uh, who was probably most famous for his role in All About Eve playing. But he always played, um, most of the time he played baddies. Most of the time he played, um, but did it with such a relish and such an intelligence. I don't know why they didn't bring him back to like they did with Cesar Romero and Burgess Meredith and Frank Gorshin. But Mr. Freeze was hot in the second season. Somehow Otto Preminger becomes Mr. Freeze and um and as as you know in the second season uh it was on on wednesday and thursday nights so it was actually a double instead of 36 episodes or 38 episodes it was actually like 70 something episodes uh in, in in that second season of batman um and every almost every episode was a cliffhanger uh so you can see these episodes i think one of them is called um it's called uh green ice and that episode in the second season stars Otto of Mr. Freeze. Now he called up Dozer, the producer and said, my grandson says, I've got to be in Batman. And, and he is, he, he, it's so ridiculous to see this old European, you know, like incredibly famous Hollywood director who had done some acting. And he had played villains in, in Stalag 17 and other things, you know, dressed up, you know, in, 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 in this ridiculous clown suit um he refused to wear um the the helmet that George Sanders wore as Mr Freeze um and he talked like you know like Batman Batman <laughs> we'll see what the Batman wants <laughs> and you know uh it was it was uh, especially Adam West and, and Burt Ward were were very turned off by by Preventer, and so was almost everybody on the set um and yet, if you, if, you, if you decide to avail yourself of that program, uh, that two-parter, you'll see it's also about balance. It's really, it's true. He wants to you know hold the city, ho- city hostage for a billion dollars, but what he first wants to do is put Batman out of business and to indicate to the world, of course, through nefarious ways, that Batman is really out for glory, that Batman is on the take. Batman is not a hero, uh, that Batman and Robin are really not who you think they are. And I think that this, again, I, I think whether, I don't know if 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 premature read the script before or had approval, but I think that's part of why he wanted to do it. I think he, the, the obviously, Batman is played for laughs, but I think the plot of a hero not really being a hero, a hero being exposed as a non-hero, and in fact, what happens in this Two parter is he, Mr. Freeze is able to sully uh, Batman and Robin's reputation to the point that they actually put they put the costumes away, and they say no, yeah, <laughs> if 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 the audience really doesn't see us as pure heroes, and they think that we're really just doing this for money and that that we're just glory hounds, that that we shouldn't even be Batman and Robin, and to me that is pure premature. <laughs> you know that's really what again although he didn't direct it he didn't write it i think that's sort of what uh you know he sort of lived to do which was to to puncture holes in these type of what you what your your typical scenarios and to show that you know things are not as colorful and clear as you think they are um and um I think that's you know he he really was able to turn you know uh, you know Batman into Bitman. <laughs> I think that was that's again some, one of his lesser accomplishments, but I think for many people, uh, and I think it's probably for myself, the first time I ever saw Otto was probably in you know when I watched the, that those those two episodes. Wait, wait, it's such so long ago. Um, uh, it, it's great I think when we can revisit things like this and and realize that it's like that life is not as <laughs> as black and white and cut and dry and colorful and and I think going back to these films uh, can sometimes teach us how to navigate through the gray period so that's all I do my friends we'll catch you hopefully next time Take care, everybody be well thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode